Dear fellow redeemed, as we begin, we will consider our gospel lesson from the gospel of Matthew chapter 5. And you might look at that and you say, like 15 or 16 verses of some of the most blistering law you've heard probably in a long time. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's sing a hymn. And as we begin... I guess the very first thing, there's a couple of concepts that help us to understand this and help us to understand it properly and then to apply it. And the first concept is um, the use of the law. You probably remember this from your catechism days, that there are three basic uses of the law. The, the law as a curb to curb outward behavior. And that's why we can live in a peaceful society that the law is written on every human's heart, and that the law will serve to curb outward behavior. That secondly, the law also serves as a mirror to show us our sin. If you remember um, when I was growing up, at least in catechism, they used the acronym SOS. The law shows our sin. And then the third use is the law as a guide. Or if you grew up with the Brown Catechism, the law as a rule which is looking at God's law for how a Christian ought to live his or her life in a way that is pleasing to God. And it's that use of the law that is especially in view when we get to Matthew chapter 5. And the difficult part, the difficult part about the law is that you and I all have God's law written on our hearts. And no matter which use, you know, curve, mirror, or guide, when no matter which use somebody may try to use, whether in teaching or in preaching, um, the conscience always catches on and wants to change it. The conscience hears a statement of law, and, and even if it's at the end of the sermon, like, this is one thing that I want to do to live a holy life, the conscience still says, but I haven't. And I guess that leads us to the second concept that is very helpful for understanding what, what Jesus is saying today in Matthew chapter 5. The first concept being the three uses of the law, curb, mirror, and guide, and that they work because God has written the law on the heart of every person. And so when law is verbalized, there's that little accuser within the own heart that says, yes, I'm guilty of this. The second concept is the concept of a blind spot. And you probably recognize this, um, like from driving, that you have to check over your shoulder before you change lanes because your mirror covers a little bit and then this mirror covers a little bit, but there's a blind spot. Or there's a blind spot in your eye. It's about, um, about a foot in front of your face. And it's the spot where uh, the optic nerve comes through the, the back of the eyeball and it just can't sense light right there. That idea of a blind spot is is true spiritually as well. That spiritually, since we have God's law written on our hearts, we also have a spiritual blind spot about God's law. It's not a blind spot in driving, and it's not a blind spot that your optical, your optician will diagnose, but it's a blind spot about where we think we stand in relation to God's law. And that blind spot is, is kind of has two major aspects, I suppose. The first is that we think we know God's law. And the second is that we think we live up to God's law. 
The first, I think I know God's law. You know, I learned my commandments. Honor your father and mother, don't murder, um, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, don't covet. And the first aspect of that blind spot says, well, I think I've done that. I haven't broken into anybody's house and, you know, stole their TV in time for the big game. I haven't, um, you know, purposely killed somebody. To my knowledge, I haven't killed anybody at all. I haven't, um, I haven't stolen. I haven't given false testimony. I've never been on a witness stand. I mean, come on. There's that blind spot. That our sinful flesh thinks it knows God's law well enough. And our sinful flesh, by nature, we think we live up to God's law well enough. And that's why this reading from Matthew chapter 5 sounds so um, extreme, over-the-top, preposterous to our sinful flesh, or painful. We get to the end, this is the gospel of the Lord, and we all say, thanks be to God, and we sit down, it's like, man, I feel terrible. This is gospel. Well, it's the gospel of Matthew. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, and what he is doing is he is describing for you and for me what living as a Christian in this world ought to look like. What he's doing is he's talking, especially in this third use of the law, the law as a rule, if you use the Gauziewicz Catechism, or the law as a guide, if you use the, the Blue Catechism growing up. How can I live a holy life that is God-pleasing? And the challenging part is that you and I, um, by nature, we've got that blind spot that says, I think I know what God's law says, I think I've lived up, up to it, and if somebody tells me otherwise, then either, either they are a little bit too extreme, or there's just no use. I think those, those are the major concepts that we know from experience, and those are the major concepts that we see played out in the Word of God. That the law written on our hearts is echoed by what Jesus says in the Gospel lesson. And it is such a sharp readjustment to how we normally think that it sounds like too much. It sounds like God is the one who's being unreasonable. And if this is his standard, if this is his standard, then who could live up to this? I can't, I can't stop a bird from landing in my head. Maybe I can prevent it from making a nest there, but I can't prevent thoughts from passing through my head as quickly as one might push them out. I can't prevent um, somebody from having a beef with me and I have to go reconcile to anybody and everybody before I, before I come to the Lord's, Lord's house for worship. Doesn't he know how challenging it is to live in a sinful world? Doesn't he know how, how serious of a demand this law is on me? And yes, I earnestly desire and I earnestly want to do exactly as Jesus says here, but it sounds like a lot. And it is. And that's where the final element of, you know, kind of the, the big picture of being able to understand this, the final element comes in. Not just talking about the three uses of the law, not just talking about our experience of the law in the heart and our perception of the law according to what we think God demands versus how we measure up. But the last element is what God says about you versus what we know about ourselves from our lived experience. 
That is to say, what God has said about you for the sake of his son compared to what we see in our own lives from a day-to-day basis. And it's the difference between um, what we would call a, a status versus, I don't know, our lived reality. And we see it reflected, you'll see this at the end of our worship service also. In the closing prayer and blessing, you have clothed us again with the righteousness of, of Jesus. And then the pastor responds, by your spirit, help us to live as your holy people until that day when we feast with you in heaven. So putting this all together, the, the status in God's eyes, where you stand with God, doesn't depend on you living up to what Jesus says in our gospel lesson. I didn't say that in the first service, and I, I heard afterward that I, <laughs> I should be that clear. That your status and your standing in God's eyes does not depend on how well you live up to Matthew chapter 5. At the same time, Matthew chapter 5 still matters. Your status and your standing in God's eyes depends on what he has said about you, what he has declared about you. Um, justification is the big, like, three-syllable word, just five-syllable word. That you and I have been declared not guilty, purely apart from anything that you have done, purely apart from anything you or I have left undone. That you and I have been declared not guilty because this Jesus, who talked and spoke all of Matthew 5 and 6 and 7, this Jesus took upon himself all of our sin against what he has said in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And that this Jesus willingly laid down his life and his righteousness, kind of a legal term or a judicial term, has been applied to you, your status in God's eyes, or what God has said about you is not guilty or righteous. It's complete and it's done And then what he wants to encourage is this new life of faith. That this new life of faith, which he began at the font, which he continues through the word of God, which he nourishes here at his table, and which is lived out among a Christian community, this new life of faith is something that he wants to encourage. And that's where you and I, with that understanding that Jesus died and rose to win that status of righteousness, you and I now try to live as God's holy people. So the first term, that idea of righteous, that you and I are seen by God and considered by God purely for reasons um, of Christ's death and resurrection, that you and I are seen as God as, as righteous. And we are clothed again in Christ's righteousness today. And that is complete and done. And yet, as we leave today, the encouragement is that you and I would live as God's holy people. That we live as a people who have been set apart. That we who worship in a sanctuary and sing sacred songs would live a sanctified life. That we who worship in a holy place and sing holy songs would lead a holy life. Kind of hear how it rhymes. We are in a sanctuary, in a sacred place, we live sanctified lives. That God, God wants you and I to live holy lives because so much of the world, number one, so much of the world around us doesn't know what that looks like or what that should look like. And second of all, maybe this is first, 
that we live a holy life not in order to earn God's forgiveness, but as a result of his forgiveness. That Christ Jesus has declared you to be his own. That Christ Jesus has clothed you again with his righteousness. That your verdict in God's court, which will be announced before all people at the end of time, that your verdict is of not guilty and having an eternal spot in the heavenly mansions. That your status in God's eyes is one of, of somebody who is righteous. And that is, that's complete and that's done. And that was given to you when you were baptized, whether it's the youngest baptized among us who's um, about three months old today, all the way to the oldest among us, that you are righteous, not because of what you have done or left undone, but simply because of what God has said for the sake of Jesus. And as people who have been declared righteous, as people who have been taken off of the hamster wheel of trying to measure up, now we look at what Jesus says here. And we say, how is it that I can live a holy life? Well, not by my own thinking or choosing, not by my own effort, but through Christ working in me, through Christ working through me, he's given me the opportunity to, to live as a holy person in this world. And it's, that, it's kind of that, that back and forth. Where, um, maybe, you, maybe you're familiar with Luther's morning prayer. Um, I thank you, my Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have graciously kept me this night. Keep me this day also from sin and every evil, so that all my doings in life may please you. And then the evening prayer is kind of the echo of that. I thank you, my Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son. Forgive me all my sin and graciously keep me this night. That the morning, that the morning might begin with a prayer to say, Lord... <laughs> Help me to live a holy life to the glory of your name. And the evening concludes with, Lord, forgive me for not living a holy life. And both are true. And even more true is God's declaration for the sake of his son that your sin has been forgiven. That's the relationship term. That you have been reconciled to God. Another relationship term. That you have been declared righteous. Your status, that you have been declared not guilty. Your status. And so which is true? And which one do you hold on to? Yes, both. It's basically, you know, the way Paul describes it in Romans chapter 7. I know where I stand in, in God's eyes and in God's court. And I know what I see in everyday practice. And Lord, help me to live up to who I am. Not because I have to um, live up to the hamster wheel of trying to make up for what I've done or left undone. But simply because you, through your son, have declared me to be your own. Totally apart from my work, totally apart from my effort, but simply for his grace. Grace, God's undeserved love for sinners. Or mercy, the, re the reverse of that. That God withholds his wrath from those who have deserved it. That... If you were to be asked, if someone were to say, well, who are you? Are you a simple person? That's what we confess at the beginning of the worship service. Absolutely. And at the same time, are you a saint, a holy person, one who has been set apart for service to God? Absolutely. You see, Jesus, when he, when he gives the Sermon on the Mount, he's giving very strong guidance 
guidance as in the third use of the law, very strong guidance for how we are to live in, in, this, in this world. And it's not, he doesn't give us this guidance to drive us to despair, but to bring us to a realization of how much we do depend on him and need to depend on him every day. And that at the end of the day, and at the beginning, and at the middle of the day, the question is never one of, what do I have to do to measure up? The question is always one of, what has my Jesus done to make me his own? And who am I really because of that fact? I'm a baptized child of God. I'm somebody whose faith is, is kept firm by the Holy Spirit as he works through his word. I'm somebody who gathers around and receives my forgiveness again by hand and by mouth. The Lord's body hidden underneath that bread and wine. And his blood underneath the wine. And I'm somebody who has been brought into a body of believers who all confess the same thing. Not that we're on some progression toward perfection, but that we gather together as people who need God's grace and forgiveness each day, need a reminder that who we are in God's eyes doesn't depend on our action, but on his declaration. And that who we are to live as, again, doesn't depend on our action by ourselves, but on Christ working through us. And then he says, yes, Go live a holy life. Please, please don't cut off your hands and feet and pluck out your eyes because obviously that will not take away sin. But Jesus has. And that is who you are too. Declared righteous. Set apart to live as holy people. Amen. Amen.